I, I was really blessed to be there at that moment and have that opportunity to step into the tide of history. What is the role of religion for the lawmakers to yeah. have that kind of power? So as a, an American Muslim who ran for United States Congress, right, I got some, I got some questions about it. Yeah. Part of this is the media without dwelling on it too much. Cause you know, when I was growing up, uh, we had only three broadcast networks doing news. I was confident then and I am today that they're a minority, the haters. Kaiser, you've really done your research. <laughs> I don't think I have any secrets. <laughs>
it did lead to the, oh, oh it was to prove that, that uh, black people in Mississippi actually wanted to vote, which the uh, white establishment said they didn't, because, oh, like 120,000 of them, uh, African Americans in Mississippi, came out to vote in a mock election for a heroic uh, man, Aaron Henry, who was the um, was the president of the Mississippi NAACP, and that led to the Freedom Summer the following year, in which was remembered, unfortunately, for the uh, murder of three people, uh, Schwer, Cheney, and Goodman, two Jewish Americans, one African American, uh, because they were uh, part of the Civil Rights Movement, and then it ultimately led to the helped uh, uh, Congress uh, and President Johnson. Um, uh, enact the civil rights laws of 64 and those that followed. So I, I was really blessed to be there at that moment and have that opportunity to step uh, into the, the tide of history. So there's no there's no question, I think, in my mind, uh, and in many people's mind, even according to this, uh, this Pew Research poll uh, that was conducted in 2019, overwhelming, uh, half overwhelmingly say, um, yeah, Americans say that Religion and faith plays. Uh, they'd like to see more of it, and they, yeah. like, it plays it plays a positive role uh, in in American society. You've held that view uh, throughout your life. Uh, you've been very vocal about that, and in some time, in some cases, have, have kind of worked for you. In some cases, have worked against you. Yeah. Uh, but you powered through. Uh, you've stuck to your guns. Um, most notably, actually, on on campaign trail uh, with with Al Gore. Yeah, uh, it was it was a momentous occasion. There was, there was a lot going on. I'm sure you were you were kind of elated, flying high, um, and you gave a speech um, specifically to the there was a there was an African American uh, congregation uh, for uh, it was who was it Reverend Anthony? Yes, Wendell Anthony. Yeah, Kaiser, you've really done your research. <laughs> I don't think I have any secrets. <laughs> so what was interesting about this was uh, you you got raving reviews from the congregation, but as you stepped out, it, you you mentioned that your uh, your your campaign manager has some very things to say yeah. to you about this because you you had made some people upset uh, because you were bringing faith into politics, so to speak. And um, and so half of it was the, uh, you know, interestingly enough, the ADL was not very happy with you, which, was, which is founded by Jews. Yeah. Um, and so you would think, you know, they'd, they'd set, you know, to show some love, but they were, they criticized you. They criticized you. Mm-hmm. And then they said that there's no place for this sort of thing in politics on the campaign trail, but the, the the Catholic League couldn't came around ironically and said good job go figure yeah all right so uh, I've tried to do this quickly but um, so I was I was honored really to be the first uh, Jewish American on that major party national ticket when Al Gore chose me I'll just tell you uh, that on the night I flew down to Nashville where he was going to make the announcement the next day. The uh, boards were kind enough to invite my family and me to have dinner with them. And, and at that dinner, Al said that he had decided about uh, two weeks before that I was his first choice for vice president. But he thought that it would be irresponsible if he didn't at least talk to some uh, friends you know, privately to, to just ask them, is America ready for a Jewish person on our national ticket or 
will this um, uh, ruin Al's chances of being president? And he said the response was fascinating because he spoke to a few Jewish friends and they were either ambivalent or urged them not to do it. And then he spoke to his Christian friends and uh, they all said there's no problem. So Gore had a, a greater sense of humor than people often thought. He said to me afterwards, so having heard that and knowing that there are tens of millions more Christians and Jews in America, I knew I could make the choice. <laughs> but he, but he, he, re he reached a conclusion uh, which is important and maybe it relates to other religious communities in America. He said, I, I concluded that the fear of anti-Semitism among Jews was much greater than the reality of anti-Semitism among non-Jews in America. And he said, I get it. I get it because it's from Jewish history, but the, the, the majority in this country don't feel it, which was very empowering. And incidentally, he, he was right because, and I, I don't want to relitigate the results of the 2000 election, but, you know, politics and elections are like sports. They're, they come down at numbers very clearly. And I will always feel grateful and proud that Al Gore and I got 544,000 more votes than George Bush and Dick Cheney because it says that that many more people, that, that basically my religion was not a negative factor that year. Now, I, I want to, and I think that one, uh, Al Gore never told me this, but I always felt that one of the reasons he chose me, we were good friends, we agreed on most issues, foreign and domestic, was that, um, that I was a religiously observant person. So was he. And um, uh, I, I remember when he made the announcement of White Candidacy in November, I'm sorry, in Nashville in August, uh, I began quite naturally, not in my text, but just thanking God that, I, that this moment had come. So when I gave that speech that you uh, have noted about two weeks later uh, at Reverend Wendell Anthony's African-American church in Detroit, I, I didn't say anything different than I just said as we began this conversation today about the appropriate and positive role of faith in American life, and yet my campaign manager, obviously reflecting somebody's anxiety back at the headquarters in Nashville or Washington, went uh, slightly off the rails, and I told him, I, you know, this is who I am, and Al knows that, that's part of why I'm on the ticket. Uh, and I stuck with it. I must say that maybe they got it over time because the Bush of people started to focus on the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal that had happened a couple of years before. And um, I got invited to give a speech at Notre Dame and South Bend, Indiana University, which, you know, is a great Roman Catholic institution. And I gave a somewhat similar speech to what I gave at Renda, the, the African-American church. And this time, with our campaign, <laughs> said that was great. So maybe they went through a learning experience. So Joe, Democrat nominee for vice president of the United yeah. States, senator from Connecticut, also attorney general. We have an establishment clause, right? So the role of religion in public life, meaning for the lawmaker, but also the chief law enforcement officer. How is that balanced? Uh, and how did you, how did you decide? And how did you find 
that quote from George Washington's farewell address. I assume that you'd read it yeah, multiple times, but George Washington, you know, to paraphrase in his farewell address, said that we should indulge with caution the notion that religion can be divorced from morality and its application in our society, in life, in public life. But people get worried about it. What is the role of religion for the lawmakers to have that kind of power? So as a, an American Muslim who ran for United States Congress, right. I, I got some I got some questions about <laughs> I got some questions about how my baby might play a role in interest, how I might vote. And I you know the, whether you like it or not, right? I got all I got yeah. some yeah, he very enthusiastic question. Yeah. And, and I thought that there were fair questions. I think yeah. people gotta know who is running. Yeah. I think people gotta know what your motives are. And they gotta know that you understand the Constitution. So, you know, the first thing for me is we're we're American, period. Right. And for some of us, we've taken an oath to the Constitution as service members or otherwise. For you, you're you're telling us that people were generally comfortable with your faith playing a role yeah. in your governing. Is that is that correct? They were generally comfortable uh, for the reason the question said from that pupil. Uh, which is because most Americans are people of faith, uh, and they may not go to uh, a house of worship every week or every day, but um, as they always like to say, if you look at any public opinion polls, God is running way ahead of any living or dead politician. I mean, the numbers are still at over 90% believe in God or some supreme authority, whatever, it, whatever one calls so it's not only I'm really glad that I'm so glad you ran, Omar, and I'm glad people asked you because a part of this is about how your Muslim faith affected what affect you in office. And I, I can't say that while people were generally responsive, I can't I can't say that people didn't sometimes ask me about it. Incidentally, often the ones who had the, maybe the courage to, to ask were non-religious Jewish Americans. You know. Um, and I would always say, I hope you don't think that, you know, when I have a big book to take, I'm going to call my rabbi there, ask him to tell me how to Right. But I also hope you don't think that the values that I got from my religious upbringing will not be part of the way I live, including decisions I make about, you know, big issues. So, so be it. I, I appreciate you going back to our first president, George Washington. Uh, that uh, farewell address is is still relevant and worth reading. There's a hundred and some odd years that later, and that clause I think was his that you quoted was a, a Washington's way of saying uh, we have now established a government here, uh, which has uh, which is a, about freedom and democracy and checks and balances. So the government will be and should always be limited. We'll not, we're not going to tell people what to do every moment of their lives. So we need other motivators or guarantors for moral behavior, for right behavior. And uh, Washington was saying, uh, essentially, that over history there's none better than religion. We all know that religion, faith, has also left people of every faith, led them some, to do terrible things. But 
um, by and large, it's been a, a, a real guarantor of uh, morality. And I think, look, I hope when it comes to the Muslim American community that more and more Muslim Americans, as is happening now, run for office, uh, elected office, that they're asked, that people I, I have the self-governance to ask, how does your faith affect your uh, public service, and that the candidates um, uh, respond directly. You know, we've come a long way on that, and I, I, don't, I didn't point this out about myself, but when Kennedy ran as the first Roman Catholic candidate for president and got elected, or not the first candidate, first to get elected, remember, he at one critical point went and spoke to a convention of, I believe it was Baptist, it was Protestants anyway, ministers, in Texas, and he had to almost bend over backward, as I looked at what he said now, to assure them that he would not be called, called what to do by the Pope, yeah, or he would not call the Pope to, to find out what, what he should do every day. And I didn't feel I had to, uh, I, I had to be defensive. I thought I could be affirmative, as, as every Muslim American candidate for office in America should be too, that this is my faith tradition. I accept, as you said, Omar, the separation of so-called church and state here in America. That's one of our great values. But <clears throat> to sum it up, I always say it's probably not original. The Constitution um, provides for freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. Yes. In fact, freedom is one of our great uh, religion. Freedom of religion is one of our great strengths. Can we expand on that for a sec? Now, I know then that our previous president, uh, Donald Trump. Yeah, he, um, you didn't say that in the most endearing way. What was that again? <laughs> Our previous president, yeah. Donald J. Trump. Yes, yeah, sure. I remember. Uh, he, um, he actually uh, made it more that uh, sort of accessible for religious institutions to play a role in endorsing candidates uh, for political office. And so, you know, touching upon sort of the idea of this, that separation of church and state, I think, I think there's the, the general public, uh, one supports that just based on the Pew Research poll, and uh, and two, I think there's sort of a growing number of folks who just want to make sure that they're also represented if they do not follow uh, for any particular religion. But I think there's a history, right? There's a history of what it means to be sort of to be, to be kind of within the the guidelines of the constitution, and then also um, what what it means to be have house a separation of church and state. I, I know that uh, Karim, you have the, a few things to say about that. Can we just kind of expand on uh, you know the history of that? Some of these sort of more unpopular opinions, maybe for, you know maybe more risque opinions about uh, what that means. I know uh, Senator Lieber and you, you've also kind of maybe even pushed the limits. Uh, on that in some cases. Yeah, now, Senator Lehman, I love that you brought up the, the history of this because I think I, the the conception of, of the Establishment Clause as being this complete wall of separation where there is to be no religion in public life, I, I think if you look back, you know, historically uh, from a constitutional perspective, that is a that is a more modern conception. You know, Thomas Jefferson's letter to Tenbury Baptist Church notwithstanding, right. 
it was it was quite a while before that viewpoint became in vogue that you know actually the establishment clause means that there should be no religion in public life. Um, Columbia Law School professor Philip Hamburger has written an excellent book, Separation of Church and State, um, in which he articulates this point. And Senator, you brought up uh, JFK, the Catholic point. Uh, there's a belief also, and he raises this in the book, that some of the the idea that we should totally exclude religion from public life came out of folks' fears that Catholics that were in the United States may have some loyalties elsewhere. And that really resonated when I heard that with me and Muslims. Omar faced all kinds of questions on the campaign trail about where his loyalties may lie, right? And I think, you know, the point you raised about the history is so important for people to understand that this is really part of the fabric of the country. I think that we can advocate for equality, fight against intolerance in all its forms, and defend national security at the same time. I know it sounds crazy. I don't want to say anything too controversial, but... We can defend national security and, and fight against intolerance at the same time. Uh, and I hope that we can start to have some more balance on that and get get folks to care. I think we could care about national security, domestic security, uh, defeating our enemies overseas, and at the same time acknowledge that there's intolerance that I think we could do better on. Right. But the life of American Muslims, and I just want to get this out, we... I think it would be a tragedy for any young American Muslim to view themselves merely as a victim of this great country. Absolutely. That is a an oversimplification. If there's if it's the case that anyone wants to convince an entire identity group, faith group, that essentially their identity comes down to being the victim of this country, I reject that personally. But Let's look at the whole mosaic of life, right? So American Muslims are the second most targeted religious group for hate crimes in the United States. We also have access to being citizens of this country and all of the rights that come along with that. The majority of American Muslims, I think, have a complex life. And I think that it comes down to family by family, region to region, and maybe the statistics are shared by whether they live in an urban environment or not, and so forth. But American Muslims have more higher education degrees compared to the rest of the general population. American Muslims are business owners more so than the rest of the population by comparison. American Muslims uh, have earned over 100000 and in the next category, over $250,000 a year, more so than compared to the rest of the general population. And so the suggestion is not that, hey, you have prosperity who needs justice. No, not at all. Yeah. But I think that life, I'd say, is pretty damn good in America. We have a lot of problems, and I think that we should address the hate crimes and mitigate them. But I think that to oversimplify the existence of an entire group, not even care to delve into who is who, how do you associate with your faith, and your identity, are you yourself a victim ever of a hate crime? Uh, I have received some pretty mean things that were said. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call that something that changed my perception of my, my country. Uh, and I don't think that qualifies me for victimhood. I think that there are a lot of unqualified victims, um, while at the same time acknowledging that there's a lot we have to do, but you have seen America change. Now we have hate crimes that have spiked on and off over the last several years. American Jews are the number one most targeted religious group for hate crimes in this country. 
you go to a Jewish facility in this country, you got fireproof material that envelops their building. You got bulletproof glass guards on the first floor. You have former special forces guarding and what's inside. It's just kids trying to go to school. Yep. Uh, where are we going? Yeah, no, look, I, I, uh, I really appreciate and agree with everything uh, you've just said. Uh, and, and it's important um, that everybody in America, but in your case, particularly the Muslim American community, hear this. So I want to begin my response with what I was thinking as you were talking. Um, first, I'll begin it with, with the founding documents of America. The, the words of the Declaration of Independence about the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that um, we have as a result of our birth uh, and obviously citizenship then here are not limited to any one group or groups. It doesn't exclude everybody. It's everybody is um, a child of the same God, descendants of your, of one of the monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Uh, we all descend from Abraham, our father. That's why I'm so excited about uh, the Muslim coalition here in America, your group, Omar, um, talking about Abraham Accords in America. So that's part of our tradition. I want to be personal in this sense that uh, I grew up in a family. My folks were not political. They were hardworking, lower middle class, middle class people. But from somewhere, probably gratitude that they found from their immigrant parents for America, they, they inhaled the American creed. And they always said to my sisters and me, don't feel that in this country you have to assimilate, you have to sort of homogenize yourself to succeed. In this country invites every one of us to be what we are, to believe what we believe. And in that sense, we actually make the country uh, stronger. And I've, that's been in me all my life. And uh, you know what? My parents were right. <laughs> As parents generally are. But so I, I thought what you said about the choices that Muslim Americans have today, about the, in, the, in some sense, reflecting the views of left and right. Am I a victim? Er, er, I, or thank God, I'm an equal American and uh, American citizen. I got a right uh, to it. Uh, all the freedoms that this country provides. Uh, incidentally, I would add, just from a Jewish perspective, um, you know, I grew up reading, studying, discussing the Bible, uh, oh, something like over 30 times, we're told to never forget that we were, however it's interpreted, translated, foreigners, members of minority groups, whatever, in Egypt, when we were slaves. So always being sensitive to anybody where you live who was also a minority uh, person, uh, the other, if I can say it more broadly. And that has always um, uh, been in me and is in me now as I see that the Muslim American community, the Asian American community rising uh, in our country. But okay, with that preface, let's crimes. Wharton? Hate crimes. Hate crimes. Let me talk about the hate crimes. And just to say very briefly that in my life, which has been a number of years now, um, 
I have experienced little, very little anti-Semitism. Actually, none of it from people I was working with or even in what I ran for. Set it in the Jewish population in Connecticut's about 2%. Um, I ran for vice president. I never experienced any of it uh, publicly. Um, now, I would always say to people when they'd ask me, um, of course, I know there are anti-Semites out there. There are always going to be bigots in any population of people. But two things. One is I was confident then, and I am today, that they're a minority, the haters. But the second is, through most of my career in public life, um, the national ethic, the prevailing ethic, was hostile to that kind of overt hatred and particularly violence in a pursuit or expression of that hatred. So that has changed, and that is uh, alarming. And we did spend the whole podcast talking about why I think that a big part of it is the internet and the ability that uh, people who are haters are imbalanced, they're troubled. But God knows there's a lot to be troubled about and unsettled about today. I mean, it just came through a national trauma of a pandemic. But the the um, uh, the economic world is changing realities. A lot of people don't have the kind of confidence in their economic security that they had in the previous generation. Also, the demographics in America are changing. And as I said, people do have a tendency to uh, react against the latest wave of new Americans. And after the Jews had Irish and Italians at all when we all came, and now it's happening to uh, Muslims, Asians, et cetera. Um, and, and so people are unsettled, and they can meet other people who are online, and if they really go astray, they're going to end up in chat rooms that stimulate their uh, most violent tendencies, and then they go out and buy a gun, and they walk into a house of worship and kill a bunch of people. And, you know, that we all have to get together and stop because it is different. The other thing I would say is leaders and the incivility of our entertainment culture. I mean, things go on on TV. I'm not a prude, but honestly. Favorite TV shows. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just so we know. What's that from? I love Lucy Generation. Okay, you're near to your ear. I want to say that Ken's said earlier. That's the status team. What the reverse of it? Now, if I want to know what your Netflix continue. That looks like. Yeah. So you know, right? Incidentally, I think that probably my wife and I are like a large number of Americans. Where you turn on cable news while we get home, and after about an hour, you say, "Oh my God, get me out of here!" Yeah, I've got Netflix. You know, right? And. Consume more uplifting. Yeah, so I tend to watch a series. I mean, of course, I love The Crown. Uh, and I, Kaiser, I just made a, a pun about your first name, about Kaiser Franz Joseph of the Austria. Sorry, every emperor, uh, empire, because I just watched the series on his uh, queen, Elizabeth Sissy. You were named after her. Oh, yeah. And uh, probably, yeah. And uh, what, what else do I like? I have trouble... See, I I like adventure, and I don't mind a little violence in my TV. My wife abhors it, so I can't watch you know some of the brutal shows. I'm from California. Do you like The Governor, Terminator Two, 
Yeah, I've watched the Terminator films. There, I, I'm. I'm. Uh, they're they go beyond being violent. They're really. They're. they're it, he was great, but there's a message. <laughs> it was been heavyweight. So uh, it's in the entertainment culture and it's in leadership. Look, uh, you know, I didn't support Donald Trump. I thought he did some things that were great, but the level of dialogue in which he was reflecting uh, what people were saying, but we never uh, heard it from a president before, and I think. Uh, it's why leaders are called. Okay. And I'm not. I'm not saying this in a positive way, but tripping value to hate speech versus uh, versus speech, normal speech that maybe is more inclusive and is positive, right? I think attributing value to hate speech is a lot more. Uh, what do you mean by that? Attributing. And so it's easier to understand. Like it is, I think people get stimulated when they say things that are hateful. I think it's self-serving. I think it makes them feel a certain way. Well, people consume it too. Right? When you consume it, when you when you create it, when you use it, and I think it makes you feel a certain way. It's self-serving, and because I think it serves it, it serves this sort of human psyche around. Um, it helps qualify um, your feeling around uh, fear, uh, your feeling around preservation. Right. Um, because then, and then you go seek out people who also feel the same way. Right. And to, to help, help qualify that you are being verified that you're correct about your positioning. And so what it does is it kind of helps, it helps this continuum of, okay, I'm right about something. And this is strong feeling about, uh, this connection to, uh, belief, a belief system, um, that is, that, that is, that is this continuous, that is, uh, backed by something. And so then that spirals into maybe even hate speech plus uh, uh, sort of the this sort of dark web of of conspiracy thinking and so on and so forth. This whole thing becomes super dangerous. The, the thing is, um, and this is right, I, I had a service crawl with, with the way that we've kind of just let all hell break loose around discourse and dialogue online. One, the, I think, al algorithmically online loves this stuff. It heats it up. It feeds off or gasoline. And so what ends up happening is um, you say something really horrendous. We know how to value it. We know how to ascribe, okay, well, this is worth X number of points so we can continue, whether it's the way you feel or the way the internet feels about it. So the tech industry actually does value it. Right. Absolutely. Because, I mean, yeah, so, but so does mainstream media. For mainstream media. get ratings for saying right. pretty horrendous things because it's a bit about the media environment you're in. And, and so, right, that's absolutely right. And it's so... Do some politicians get that? Because the harder they are, sometimes bordering or, or going over the line toward the bigotry and hatred, the the more attention they get from the media. And if they're in the right district or state, the more votes they get. That's right. Joe, everyone's accountable for what they do, but I think we know that it's monetized and, and engagement translates to monetization. And so Kerwin and I talked about this. You have community guidelines, right? All these tech industries hold themselves out as sort of right. the virtue models, the saviors, the moral heroes of, of morality and ethics when it comes to feeling safe online and so forth. At the same time, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim hate content, I'm not talking about being critical, it's fine. People gotta just be able to distinguish us things or get rid of life, it's, you know, it's okay. You, you, I think some people think that they're entitled to victims that were not in, in a lot of cases in this country, but we're talking about hate content for a second here. Just straight up hate content. Yeah. It's amplified. 
Oh, no, I agree. Is that, that's what at first, uh, where I explained how different things were today than, than most of my uh, lifetime, how much more bigotry and hatred and violence based on that hatred we see in America. The number one cause is the Internet and, and the way in which people can meet each other who uh, are, have this in them. They're unsettled. They're anxious. They're, they're hateful. Well, it's become a brand. So people that has become a brand. I mean, look, look at uh, you know uh, the TV networks. There are uh, talk radio hosts who um, and 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 TV hosts who have built an audience on being inflammatory and just this side of real hatred. As you probably know, there's a lot of. Uh, anger in the African-American community now uh, toward Tucker Carlson on Fox. But you could, and and I, I understand why they're angry. He seems to single them out. But that's true of, of a lot of other people on talk radio. And if you go to the dark web, oh, it's like you're in oh, the rails. It's off the rails. And and if, if somebody's really off balance themselves, then they, they go from those chat rooms, those uh, extremist chat rooms, as I said earlier, to the gun store, buy a gun, and then they start shooting. So here's, so, here's what I meant. It was so long. So, Joe, for per uh, pre agreement for this, we need you to say at least two controversial things. Pre, we're already putting that up, and and give it to the to, to the uh, vultures. Answers. Well, be quick. I mean, some of the people listening already sit I just wanted to kind of close on this, like this specific point on this topic. Yeah. So just around value, right? Like it's a very clear how it makes people feel when you say some pretty insightful things um you get ratings you get clicks uh you stay on the air and so on and so forth right? so people build a brand and actually have an entire career around such things and so the sort of the, the freelance you know mob of the internet also be is able to out continue that conversation and you'll get way more hits if you say something crazy now juxtapose that against what you know what you got when you got that call from jesse jackson congratulating you yeah. knowing that you guys both don't agree on lots of things and so he did the right thing to call you, right? And 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 was 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 gracious enough to congratulate you. He said, "I know in America, when a barrier is broken for one group, the doors of opportunity go bit wider for every other American." Spot on, right? Lots of people don't want to hear that, and you will not. You're not going to get clicks for, for for if I tweeted this right now, I will not get clicks. It's not sexy. Right. Yeah, you get that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Just tell me no, but no, but you just, it's fine. Just that's okay. I don't say number. No, but I, I, I was very moved when Jesse Jackson said that we had gotten to know each other. Practically, we got to know each other because we had argued with each other about different issues. So, but that's the American way. Part of this is the media, without dwelling on it too much, because you know when I was growing up, uh, we had only three broadcast networks doing news. I have no idea what the the big broadcasters of my time, uh, Cronkite, Huntley, Brinkley, et cetera, what their politics was. They just told the news. Then the cables came along, and they figured something out. I have to give the news that's credible to everybody. I could segment the American people. I can go right or left, and I'll pick up enough uh, eyeballs or ears to make a lot of money off that, and that's what it, and that's the why. Let me yeah. So entertainment. One of this one, or you nailed that. So look, we we talked a lot about the hate content because it's easy and it's perceptible, right? But I think that there's a another problem that gets under discussed, which is this whole victimhood industry, 
and this content that I would classify as hollow tolerance. So you have people who are generating social capital around things that seem like they're against hate and so forth, but it doesn't move the needle. So when I see American Jews or American Muslims being attacked and we just had Holocaust remembrance, we have to band together against the haters now because the haters, uh, the volume of their voices is rising. I, I don't know that their numbers are rising. They may be, but um, it's clearly they're, they're, they're too uh, influential in our society. And, you know, it's the old line and if, uh, the, the highest places in hell are reserved for people who maintain their moral neutrality at a time of moral crisis. Mm. That's a paraphrase of Dante. But uh, generally, that's what he uh, that's what he had in mind. So I really appreciate what the Muslim Coalition in America is doing. And you know, I think everything I've said or we've said, if if I was, first of all, I'd say that, and this is random, but I've had a lot of uh, interaction with Muslim Americans. Um, Nobody's cool about no, cool. <laughs> yeah. no, extremely likable. Yeah. What, uh, is there any way you've also loved no. the share of the love for right? I see, that's why. Uh, I think that's what we're saying. All I want to say is the haters, the Islam Muslims, don't get it. Because um, m- most of the Muslims in America are immigrants. <laughs> they are extremely, in my experience, grateful to be in America, very patriotic. And they are raising children, which is the normal course that Jewish Americans have gone through. First generation, maybe not so educated, hardworking. The kids work hard because the parents want them to. They become the leaders of business, science, professions, etc. And they 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 contribute to the country enormously. So um, the uh, the main point is, and I'm I want to reflect what you said, Omar. I hope no. Uh, Muslim American really feels like a victim in this country. You're equal citizens, and um, there are are there people who will uh, discriminate against you because you happen to be Muslim. Yeah, but if I may, the hell with them. You know, you, go to, go for it. You you can hard work and uh, following your values, following your religious values, if if they're uh, meaningful to you, are will and and I hope. Uh, I said should, but we'll take it to the top. We got a lot to be thankful for, and I, I think I think um, we have to guard the kids in this country from this indoctrination of victimhood and incapacitating them psychologically from early age to believe that you know all they let them out to is a victim. I think it depends on the generation, though. Ultimately, and I think I think as the senator Evelyn pointed out, like there is that generation of of immigrants who came, and when you're the first group you have a bad right like you're just you're you're kind of laying out the fa- the foundation that the 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 you're you're laying out that that, that first layer for for generations to come it's, it's a dream it's the same time but it's it's different yeah. old and i think people are pointing fingers and asking you know they no one has like laid the path just yet so it's all very new um ultimately and so i think people who have take a position of victimhood not that they want to but it's 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 what i think folks who don't have an action plan who don't believe that it's within reach just yet and maybe that's the next generation that's able to kind of like to stand on the backs of the first right aren't able to then to then say okay i can i can see the forest from the trees but i think that first the first generation i think like has it the worst and so oftentimes they just they're left with just complaining about what's possible 
because they don't know where to go from there. And if you see sort of like communities in general, I think not to diminish uh, their voices and complaints, they they complain because I don't think anyone has risen to say, hey, here's here's a really good resolution to how we're going to solve this really nice problem and suffering. Well, I think I agree. When I, I just said the story told about Al Gore and what he found when he took to his Jewish and Christian friends about them nominating me. I mean, it basically, this is a message to uh, Muslim Americans today, which is uh, because of our respective histories and things that you've experienced, Muslims and Jews in America, we're, we're sensitive, defensive, a little bit nervous of the older generation of having has become too prominent. But the truth is, as Gore found out, the majority of Americans don't feel that way. And I, I believe, I know that's true about Jewish Americans, notwithstanding the increase in anti-Semitism. And I'm confident it's also true about Muslim Americans. We need Abraham courts for the United States. I agree. And I don't know, I don't know how you're going to uh, do it, Omar, but it's, it's a great idea. How we're going to do it. How we're going to do it. Together. Right, work better. Abraham, the children of Abraham. Look, I'll, I'll close with this. I, when I look at young Muslim kids in America, I see CEOs, not victims. Yeah, I want them to rise to whatever levels that they want to and then not be shackled with the indoctrination of victimhood from an early age because it is within reach. Uh, and I think that overly obsessing and being an unqualified victim is um, unethical to do that to a kid. But we got to do a lightning round because we're in New York City. Oh, kid. Best, best Jewish deli. <laughs> so um, in New York, it's probably still... Uh, the the famous one, which is Zabar's, which is uh, uh, now I'm I'm kosher. The other hand, brother, sign of course, but yeah, I can't just walk into uh, any deli, even if it's a Jewish deli, unless you know the rabbi said the meats are okay. But Zabar's has very good cooking. Okay, how, do, how, does it, how does it work in the Jewish faith? Do you do you because like in Muslim faith, so I keep halal. Yeah, so. If you walk into a, I call them that an M&L drive-through. No, that's not correct. That's not true. And well, Kalal is becoming very. No, so, so yeah. like if you walk if you walk into a a a, a Muslim family's house, you're like just out of just so you don't like cause problems. You're not supposed to ask. But do you do you, do you have you just assume that it's kosher? Do you always ask? You mean it's like oh, well, it's in a great question, Kaiser. So, and a very awkward question. <laughs> so, um, with, you know, by this time, everybody knows that my wife and I are observant and observe the kosher laws. But a lot of times I have to sort of say ahead of time, hey, you know, I'm kosher. We, we, and we, and now I would say we're modern for kosher, which means we'll, we'll eat the pasta, fish, out, but I don't mix milk and meat. I don't eat uh, animal. I don't eat pig products. That's where we Muslims and Jews stand together, or or sit and eat together. Uh, but it, it's awkward. It is really okay. No, I'm running for office right now, so I get to ask you this: Afghan or Iranian food? I like them both, but I I must say that. I, and I, I went to uh, Afghanistan a lot during the war, so I tasted a lot of it, which was good. I probably have more access to Iranian, or as they say, or Persian. Just shoot us free, woman. Yeah, pardon? Shoot us free. Out there, Iranian. What was that? Iranian. Okay. And that's my idea. What's your Afghan? Afghan. Well, look, 
To be fair, you haven't been to my favorite hotel. No, I have the weekend. I should to anybody to. Over one should go with food to sway and essentially putting it all out there. Some uh, some of them pretty different. Yeah, no, I love it. I love when they say some. They were my kind. Yeah, they're like, and they're all in the um, uh, Muslim countries that went to. They learned to mostly give me fish. Oh, I just share a story from Afghanistan. So I'm in the. Uh, the presidential palace from Paris, I was there on McCain, Senator McCain is there. And, um, uh, you know, they give me rice and sort of stuff like that because they know. So I won't, they bring out a beautiful bowl of fruit and take, oh my God, I love fruit. This is it. I reach for the fruit. Paris says, don't touch it. I said, why? Uh, he said, you know, your body doesn't have the immune system for that. No, I thought I'd that. That's true. Okay, yeah, that's true. I got sick off that fruit. And sadly, later that night, as we left the palace, he pulled me aside and he said, You know, I'm Pashtun. I don't know whether you know, uh, Senator, but we Pashtuns believe we are about one of the lost tribes of Israel. So, have you ever heard that? I might have heard that. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's an idea that floats around. I think the Taliban are going to have a meeting about that. <laughs> All right, well, let's work a wrap with that. Thank you for joining us. Lieberman, this has been a phenomenal show today. Uh, we hope we can continue the conversation off camera uh, and do continue to do good work together. So thank you for have, uh, having us uh, in your offices today. Uh, we, we've, we've had a phenomenal time. And I would, uh, I'm going to venture to guess that you have as well since we've got way over. Yeah, I have. They really appreciate everything the Muslim Coalition is doing, uh, really to uh, improve America as well as the opportunities for Muslim Americans.